Hey, we appreciate you listening to this. This event. All right, we'll start over. <laughs> no, that's going in. <laughs> that's <a good> <laughs> Hey, we appreciate you checking us out and listening to this episode, but this is really not our best episode to start with. So we suggest you start at like episode seven and work your way around that way and come back to this one later. It is an important episode, but it's also just me lecturing because I hadn't gotten any co-hosts hit our stride, hit our style, or really discovered how editing worked. So try and (laughs) look at some of the other work first. Great episode, just not as entertaining. Yeah, there you go. That's probably the best way to describe it. If you're like me, I mean, listening to Michael lecture is like totally cool beans. But, you know, if you want something a little more interactive, skip ahead a little. All right. Enjoy. Hello and welcome to the first ever episode of Probably Polly, the podcast where we aren't sure of anything, even our name. Despite my tone of voice, which is me trying to get used to being a podcaster, we are extraordinarily excited for our first episode and all of the wonderful encouragement that we have received from the members of our community. I hope that we can live up to your expectations, and I hope that you enjoy this. Since this is my first podcast, I'd like to take a minute before we get started to introduce myself. My name is Michael Haig. I have been a member of the non-monogamous community since 2008, which is roughly nine years at the time of this recording. I study, speak, and write about relationship ethics, specifically non-monogamous ethics, and hold undergraduate degrees in philosophy, business, and sculpture, as well as a master's in applied ethics. Though this program focuses on non-monogamous issues, it is really a relationship ethics guide since my view of non-monogamy is that it is a claim that simply indicates a rejection of the idea that monogamy is the only legitimate relationship form. In short, any type of relationship is acceptable under a non-monogamous point of view. Therefore, I think that you will find most of the information I cover is applicable to any form of relationship, including friendships or familial relationships. The real questions I am focused on answering relate to what makes actions between individuals ethical, and I think that has universal application, even if I'm using non-monogamy as the lens through which I approach these problems. As you all may remember, uh, we did send out a call for questions about a month ago, And it is our hope that we'll be able to begin each of these shows by answering a listener question. However, we didn't actually get any questions sent in, so my producer Lacey and I did some brainstorming of the common questions that I have been asked or that I run into on a consistent basis for our first couple of episodes. Which means, if you do send in a question or reply to our Facebook post with a question, then there's a very good chance that you'll make it onto the show at this point. So again, please send in questions at our email probably polypodcast at gmail.com, or by responding or posting on our Facebook page. And our question for this week is one that I hear all too often. And while the question may take many different specific forms, the general question is always roughly the same. And it sounds something like, I have been told by a friend that my visual preference for a certain race is problematic, but I don't understand how just having a visual preference can be harmful. I think we've all heard this. And The truth is, it's actually really sort of a confusing and complex question to answer. I'm choosing to answer it as a listener question rather than a primary topic, because I'm sure that it's handled much better elsewhere by members of the minority communities to which it's usually addressed. However, since the primary ethical question in polyamory is consistently race-based and minority-based, and one which we have to face as a community that we are overwhelmingly white, cis, heterosexual, middle class or above, and otherwise privileged, 
I do feel I need to address it at least some, even if it's not the core of my work. So unpacking this particular problem is something that we all need to be able to do and that we all need to call out members of our community if they are not doing. It should also be noted that I primarily mean this question to be indicative of a majority or privileged group speaking about a preference either for a minority group or exclusively for themselves. So white people who only want to date white people, white people who only want to date Asians, etc. There are some valid reasons to not want to date white people or any other group which you might find to be in an oppressive position relative to you. For instance, you may feel that it is impossible for a white partner not to activate their privilege and oppress you if you've been oppressed by white people your entire life and therefore have a very real need to not date white people. But that's not a simple visual preference, and that's what we're talking about, is people that code their interest in a certain race as a visual preference. So first, let's talk about the reason why it's always problematic to think that any racial group should be treated differently from any separate racial group. The reason is that the in-group variance of any uh, racial group is going to be larger than the average between group variance. So what does that mean? It means that anything that you talk about as being, say, a feature that you have a preference for, like I like really thin noses, for instance, is going to be something that every racial group has members of that racial group who have thin noses. Also, if you have a preference for long straight hair, there's every racial group has someone in their racial group that has long straight hair, right? Now, of course, all the preferences I'm listing so far are Eurocentric preferences, which are problematic for a host of reasons. But the short version is that no matter what kit of visual experiences you are looking for in a partner, there are members of every racial group that have those features, unless the only feature you're interested in is skin tone. So unless you have a fetish for peach colored skin, it's very hard to justify saying that you rather date white people. Now, it is probable that if you are white, the majority of people that you will date will be white because we know that the entire cultural group that we live in engages in self-segregation. You'll be around more white people. We also know that all things being equal, people prefer visually people that are similar to people they see more often and you see yourself the most in a mirror and your family the most. So people tend to slightly rate members of their own race more attractive on average. But that's very different than saying, I won't date a black person. Right. It's very different than getting on your local dating site, say, OkCupid, and just saying, I don't even want to see black people show up on my search or automatically saying no to any black person that comes across your page. So there's a difference between saying, I often don't find a certain racial group attractive. I don't really want to list a racial group because I don't want to say white people because white people are the majority group. And the only person that would be problematic if they didn't find white people attractive would be potentially certain subgroups of minorities, but for the most part, any minority has a good reason to not want to date white people, which is that we are potentially damaging to them, as I noted before. So unfortunately, a lot of my examples are sort of sounding racist because this question is about people being racist. So please don't take those as an endorsement of those preferences. Contrawise, any visual element that you don't like also exists within your racial group quite a lot, right? So in your previous preferences, there's going to be members of your group that have shorter hair or curly hair or no hair, right? Or whatever sort of the whole spectrum of the rainbow that you can imagine. So when you say that I only date fill in the blank race, there's something going on beyond a visual preference. 
The flip side of this is model minority issues and fetishization. So this is not avoiding a certain race because you're racist against them, but preferencing a certain race because you have a fetish for them or you treat them as a model minority group. So if you only date members of a specific minority group, even though you're not a member of that minority group, then chances are that you are fetishizing that group. Why is that problematic? So again, all of the same in-group, out-group scenarios exist. It's entirely possible that you have a visual preference that means you often end up with members of a specific minority group, but it's entirely irrational to say that you only find members of that group attractive unless you have a cocktail for exactly all of the things that make up that racial group. And even then, you'd be hard-pressed not to find members of a different racial group that almost had the same exact qualities unless the only quality that really matters in the end is skin color. And if the only quality that matters is skin color, chances are it's coming from a pretty racist place. So what's usually happening isn't a visual preference at all. It's just being related as a visual preference. It's a subconscious preference where you have a sense of what you think people of that cultural group are like. And what that means is it means you're objectifying the cultural group, i.e. you're not treating them as individual people who are unique, but rather as a homogenous group which will have specific patterns and interests and manners of behavior that you are interested in or think you are interested in. And I promise you that every member of every minority group has at some point been approached by somebody who only wanted to date them because of the minority group that they were in and not because of who they were as a person. And that is very damaging. So to summarize, if you're trying to figure out why having a preference based on a certain race is racist, the answer is because the definition of racism is treating people differently because of the race that they belong to. And there's no way that if you're prioritizing certain racial groups or eliminating other racial groups entirely based on their race, that you're not making choices based on race. It's circular. It's tautological. To say, I'm not racist, I just don't date a certain race, just means you're trying to avoid the fact that you're racist. The much harder question often for people to get their heads on is, why is wanting to date a certain race racist? And the answer to that has already been covered, but is also, to say it simply, if you have a racial preference for one race, it's the same as having a non-racial pre preference against every other race, right? So if I only want to date white people, I don't want to date every other minority. I don't want to date Asians. I don't want to date Hispanics. I don't want to date Native Americans because I want to date white people. The nature of having a preference is that preference excludes one way or the other. So you can't simply tell me, well, I like pick a minority group. I'm not racist. I just prefer that group. That means that you have a negative preference expressed for every other racial group, and that negative bias hurts those racial groups and translates into a lot of other things that you do and how you see those groups and how you value them. And that bias and that preference came from somewhere. Chances are, if you have a preference for a certain group, it's because you believe something about how that group behaves that isn't true because it's objectifying racial prejudice rather than an honest assessment of the specific person that you're trying to date. This is one of those questions that I can never let pass me by in any situation that I'm in. I was playing a video game the other day, and one of the members of the video game asked where he could find Asian girls to date. And to my horror, the entire game stopped while people gave him advice on where he could hunt down Asian girls. And when I chimed in that this discussion was racist and degrading, and I was angry about it, one, he was confused because he thought that he was paying Asian women a compliment by preferring them. And two, he asked if I was either Asian or a woman, and said if I was neither of those things, 
then he didn't care about my opinion. And while he may have truly believed that, I think that position was only valid because I was the only person critiquing what he was saying. I think if the entire chat room had responded with revulsion to his question and explanations of how that question was racist and how that question fetishized an entire group of human beings into sex objects for his interest, that those sort of questions would happen much less often. So please, if you have any friends that have this question, if you have this question, go and look at do the reading. Google this question for yourself. Look for minority authors. Look for people speaking for the minority position, especially the fetishized minority position about their lived experiences and how horrible it can be. It really is a problem and it's really not a compliment. And I think that's all I need to say about that topic for today. Okay, that wraps up our questions for this week. I want to go ahead and just dive right in to the main topic. How accepting polyamory changed everything I thought I knew. And when I say that, I really want you to understand that I don't mean it in the specific term about relationships. I mean it changed the very way that I think about what counts as knowledge. If you go back seven or eight years, there's blogs and journal entries ranting about how I just found out this thing about polyamory and how it's changed the way I look at all knowledge and sort of everything that I thought that I knew. And it is dramatically deeper and more far-reaching, the fact that I can date more than one person at a time. And I want to talk a little bit about why I think that is and why I think you should agree with me. The field which studies what is knowledge and what counts as knowledge and how you gain knowledge is called epistemology. So basically it's asking questions about someone says they know something, do they really know it or do they just think that they know it? And while there's a lot of different discourses and a lot of disagreement, as there are in all branches of philosophy, one fairly common agreement is the idea that justification, or what counts as justification, is an important question in what counts as knowing, and that to know usually by most standards requires having some justification for knowing. And what I mean by need justification, I mean that simply being right isn't nearly enough to count as actually knowing something which might sound weird at first, but then take, for example, your friend who plays the lottery. He says he knows what the lottery numbers are going to be, and he goes and he buys a ticket. And you tell him he can't know, he's just guessing. But then the lottery number hits, and he shows up and starts yelling, see, I told you I knew. And yet, you don't want to agree that he did know. You actually think that he didn't know, that something else is going on here. You think that he guessed, and he got lucky, so he was right, but he didn't know. Knowing seems to require him having some reason to think that he knew what the numbers were, besides sort of a blind faith. And if you think that that justification is important for what counts as knowledge, you would be agreeing with the vast majority of people working in epistemology. And the reason that should matter to us is because presumably your friend is not going to be able to guess the lottery numbers over and over again. And if he thinks he can, he might make dangerous investments in lottery tickets attempting to win the lottery an unlimited number of times when in fact he only got lucky the one time. If you're not sure whether or not you think that counts as knowledge, try and answer the question, if your friend then came to you and offered to sell you next week's lottery tickets for $15,000, next week's lottery number, sorry, for $15,000, would you pay them? My guess is that you would not, because even if they were right about the numbers last week, you don't think they actually had foreknowledge. Instead, they guessed and they were lucky. They were correct, but they didn't know. So then what would count as knowledge? To continue our example of the lottery ticket, maybe what would count as knowledge is if your friend could repeat the trick. For instance, 
if they guessed the correct lottery numbers three weeks in a row, and especially if they told you the numbers before they hit and then you watched them hit, or if there was some kind of explanation that could give you a causal chain that you could follow and understand. So for example, if your friend tells you that they have an inside guy who fixes the lottery numbers for them, you now understand exactly how your friend is getting the lottery numbers each week. And then if you can demonstrate that ability more than once, twice, three times, then the statistics start to come in line and also seem to indicate that he couldn't just be guessing. Since it would be nearly impossible for your friend to tell you what the numbers will be in advance three times and be right each time without actually fixing the game, you now have more justification in the form of statistical probability, repeatability, and verifiability. This means that everybody actually has standards for what they're willing to call knowledge and for what they are willing to call justification. It's just most of us don't say it explicitly in those terms when we're thinking about it. It's the reason why you ask people the question, how do you know that? So when your friend says something like, if you want to fix this problem, you have to do whatever. And you say, well, how do you know that works? And if your friend says, well, I did it one time and it worked, you're not sure that you believe them. But if they can explain why it worked, it increases the chance that you believe them. And that's the nature of justification as the basis for knowing. Before I started researching polyamory, my primary source of justification for knowledge about social issues was based on my own experiences, common sense, and watching other people. I had, of course, also read books, listened to podcasts, and generally asked the advice of people who I thought to be specifically successful in relationships. But it turns out that just because those people had happy relationships doesn't mean that the advice they were giving was the reason they had happy relationships. In the same way, that just because your friend hit the lottery doesn't mean that he actually knew what the numbers were in advance. But of course, I didn't know that yet. What I did know was that, well, there were a lot of different ideas on what one should or shouldn't do to have an ideal relationship. One thing that everyone I talked to or read about agree on, that never varied from person to person, was not a coping mechanism or a skill or a great idea. It was a number. And that number was two. Whatever else anybody knew, they were absolutely sure that no relationship could be healthy or ethical unless it was completely limited to two people. Although there was even some disagreement about what counted as two people. In the group that I grew up in, it was two people as long as you didn't actively cheat on your partner in the sense of having sex or engaging sexually with someone else. But I ran into communities later where even hanging out in a friendship capacity with a member of the opposite sex was considered cheating or where emotional cheating was considered more important than physical cheating. So deep emotional intimacy would sometimes get counted as cheating and sometimes not. The discussion there then between those groups became about what counted as breaking the only two rule. In short, what counted as being more than two. Not the unquestionable basis that nothing that had more than two people was unhealthy. I was so completely surrounded by two that I never even asked myself what other options might be out there until I found myself inexplicably in love with two people at the same time. Something which heretofore I had thought to be completely impossible, and as an impossibility, the primary moral reason to be monogamous. After all, how could it be moral to be with two people if you only loved one of them? Yet here I was, generally in love with two wonderful people, in a world which claimed that I could only possibly be in love with one of them. And so began a very long journey of reading and research on non-monogamous relationship styles. During this time, I became convinced that it could be practicable and ethical to be with more than one person at a time. That isn't what shocked me, or what changed the way that I see knowledge. I have always known that there are exceptions to every rule, 
and that there are always outliers, and that our knowledge is subject to change and growth through time. Now what shocked me was that as soon as I went looking, it became abundantly apparent that the majority of evidence around human reproductive biology pointed to what biologists call a promiscuous mating system in humans. And yet no one was even talking about it. To quickly clarify what that means, all animals are classified as falling into one of a few mating systems. Monogamy, with which we are all familiar, where one male and one female are together, or now more than that, although this is the biological, not human definition of monogamy, and relates to how the species reproduces, not anything else the species may do. Polygamy, which means multiple marriage, and is subdivided into three categories. Polygyny, which is one male in an exclusive relationship with multiple females. Polyandry, which is one female in an exclusive relationship with multiple males. And polygenandry, which is more than one male in an exclusive relationship with more than one female. So, for example, two males and four females form an exclusive mating group, where inside of that group, anyone can mate with anyone else, but they don't mate with other closed groups of males and females in their community. And finally, promiscuity, where any member of the community is free to mate with any other member of the community. Now, interestingly, these labels were all taken from existing human relationship styles that had already been observed when biologists went to start labeling animals. Only unlike humans, each animal is only assigned one mating style, which is the biological or way that in nature it most likely is reproducing. Unfortunately, in humans, calling someone promiscuous tends to mean they have low or even no standards and is, of course, kind of a slur. Therefore, it's not something that people like to talk about very much, even in polyamorous circles, to call ourselves promiscuous or to promote that word. But this is not what it means in the biological sense, because all animals are actually quite selective when it comes to choosing appropriate partners. If they weren't, the pressures of evolution would remove them. It only applies, or only implies, that the decision of which member of the community to mate with is left in the hands of each individual in the community, and not enforced by rigid social structures. Thankfully, in recent years, sex-positive anthropologists who want to study non-monogamous human mating systems, as well as the mating systems of our closest relatives, the chimps and bonobos, have coined the term multi-male, multi-female mating to better describe this system and to destigmatize the title. And yet in my entire life, I have only heard two narratives about human sexuality. The first is that we are naturally monogamous, but also very bad at it, and that we end up therefore cheating a lot. And the second is that we are polygynous maters, like gorillas or horses or elk where one male fights off other males to collect a harem of females. In both of these narratives, monogamy is then described as being the superior option. In the monogamous narrative, it's superior because it's both the natural way to be and the most fair way to be. If we're naturally monogamous, they argue, accruing additional mates of any variety is intrinsically harmful, both because it denies other people access to mates, potentially, and because it goes against our nature, which is, of course, difficult. However, the next most popular narrative, that we are polygynous, then claims that polygyny is natural, but inherently evil, because it treats women as objects to be collected by men, and therefore we have overcome our evil natural ways and become better than animals by choosing our own monogamous path. Interestingly, in the general community, it's not important which of these myths you believe, even though they are logically exactly at odds, as long as you believe that monogamy is the good guy. 
But in the end, it doesn't matter at all what our natural mating style is, or even if we can know something so hidden in the distant past of time. Because it's also unnatural to have vaccines, or doctors, or castes. And yet, all of those things are profoundly beneficial. But here, people were actively avoiding contradictory evidence and promoting a completely out-of-date model of human biology as the starting point for the conversation on monogamy. In short, the justificatory model that I had been using had no validity at all. And I had to face the fact that the vast majority of everything I thought I knew, especially about relationships, romantic and otherwise, ethics, and healthy behaviors, relied heavily on the very same model that my belief in monogamy had which in turn meant they were not based on anything at all. And it was in that moment that I realized that every belief which I had, which I had not pulled apart, thoroughly researched and investigated, and then put back together again, couldn't even be called knowledge. And that is when I realized I knew so much less than I thought that I did. This realization changed the direction of my entire life sent me back to school pursuing first an undergraduate in philosophy and then a master's in applied ethics. It required me to take seriously every ethical claim which I had previously written off as outlandish and every new ethical claim that I encountered, no matter how much I might dislike it at first glance. It required me to be much more charitable and, though I wouldn't normally call myself humble, in this one regard, more humble. I'm sure that you have all been implored on more than one occasion to question everything, inundated or berated even. I know that I have, and I know I thought that that's what I was doing. But I want to be very clear when I say, everything you haven't questioned isn't knowledge, and that most of what you think you know, you haven't questioned. It is, of course, impossible for you to function in a world where you know nothing. So each of us learns how to get along by the examples set for us, by the models we have growing up in our parents, in our community, and in popular culture. However, if you believe that the myth of monogamy as the only healthy and ethical relationship style is indeed incorrect, as I do, then you also have no basis or justification for anything else that you learned in a similar way. So, if your partner says that they think one of your behaviors is unhealthy, and you say, Everyone I know does this. Well, the end, everyone you knew was monogamous. Everyone you know doing something doesn't make it true, doesn't count as evidence, doesn't count as knowledge. This doesn't mean that you should show up, throw out everything that you know, but it does mean that you can't be certain that any of those beliefs are healthy or ethical. It also means you should be very careful about adopting or applying those lessons to your own life especially if someone else in your life has been telling you that your way of being is hurting them. And you might want to say that you aren't doing that. I mean, adopting wholesale elements from common sense culture about relationships. But I promise you, you are. I am. Everyone is. There are so many thousands of little truths out there that we rely on on a daily basis that it is a lifelong endeavor to work through them all, and we're never really going to be done. We just hit the most troubling ones as we go, and we get better through time. This is such a pervasive problem that the bulk of the time that someone has a question for me about a problem they are experiencing in their relationship, it's because one or more of the people in the relationship are applying some sort of unexamined truth, which are in reality just beliefs they have which have not been critically examined. 
So I want to take a second to look at a couple of examples of things that you may not have thought of as being common knowledge truths that are in fact incorrect. Uh, while I'm doing this, please remember that I'm only trying to point out flaws in these commonly held beliefs, and that these are examples, not whole and complete topics in themselves. So if these are examples or something you are dealing with, please research them more thoroughly and do not take my example to be an exhaustive explanation of the topic. Because again, I'm focusing only on the flaws in the common knowledge, not on the good side of the common knowledge. So usually common knowledge beliefs have some basis in reality, and I don't want you to completely ignore your own health following these examples of where common knowledge fails. So for my first example, people often take for granted that someone who is lying is a bad person and that the lying is exclusively their fault. In fact, we've been told this our entire lives. Lying to people you love is bad, and the people who do that are bad people. But the truth is that studies show that an honest dialogue is actually a two-way street. In fact, the biggest predictor of lying isn't the history of the liar, meaning how often that person has lied before, but the way the person whom they are lying to handles bad news. This means that if you punish your partners for telling you the truth by exploding on them or taking their behaviors, their honest explanation of their behaviors, as license to treat them poorly, they will start to learn to lie to you. If the punishment for telling the truth is dramatically worse than the punishment for getting caught lying, they will lie to you. Of course, if that person has this sort of problem in the past with previous relationships or parents or friends, romantic partners, they may come into the relationship with a tendency to lie. But as the other part of that relationship, you could communicate with them how you prefer honesty, and you can then reward them and treat them fairly when they tell the truth. You can praise them every time they tell the truth, even if it's about a small thing that you think they should have told the truth about anyway, when you realize it was difficult for them. The truth here is that lying is, most of the time, about both partners, and that many relationships, which are otherwise healthy, could be made much more healthy by accepting that. But instead, our cultural myth of the liar and the victim encourages explosive responses to lying, which in turn only increase the incentive to lie in the future. It also creates a system where the person being lied to is inherently the victim, even if their responses to the truth are extremely unhealthy. This causes many kind and good people to get trapped in relationships where they find themselves inexplicably lying, but having a very hard time telling the truth. They can't figure out why, and they feel like they're terrible people, but they just keep doing it. They also don't want to leave because they feel like breaking up with a partner is a form of punishment, and that since they are the one lying, they have no right to end the relationship. Now, of course, this isn't to defend or justify people who lie in a way that hurts you. If you are in a relationship and are being lied to, and it is unhealthy for you, you should also feel okay leaving. It's more just a reminder that things are much more complicated than the standard narrative, and that you have to evaluate the specific situation to see if your partner is hurting you, or if you can provide a safe space which will encourage truth-telling. Second example. If you're having a difficult discussion with a partner, and your tones start straying into unhappy notes, and then suddenly they say something intentionally harmful and cutting, then they have attacked you, and that justifies responding with a cutting remark of your own. In short, this boils down to the old eye for an eye. 
It says that if someone does something bad, then they lose all rights and protections. It's the same theory that undergirds the prison industrial complex, where prisoners are treated inhumanely, and we make jokes about how likely they are to be raped. But most people shrug it off with the remark, oh well, if they didn't want to go to prison, they shouldn't have committed a crime. But in relationships, we are dealing with people that we love, and the emotional intensity can easily push us into our flight or fight mode. So if your partner lashes out at you, it is much less likely an indication that they are bad and that they hate you than that they have been emotionally overloaded. When my partners intentionally insult me, or if I feel hurt by something they said and I even think they might have insulted me, I respond, I know you love me, but what you just said seemed intentionally hurtful. Since I know you would not harm me on purpose, can we talk about why you said what you just said? I say it calmly, and I mean it. I have a real desire to hear what they have to say and why they felt the need to do this. This is two things. The first is it reminds my partners how I see our relationship, and the second is that it forces them to have a logical response, which in turn requires them to exit the fight-or-flight mode in order to answer me. While I can't imagine this will work for everyone all of the time, it has worked for me every time I have applied it. So seeing my partner's insults, not as an attack, but as an indication that they have been hurt, were pushed to an unhealthy emotional level, I am able to respond in a constructive and healthy way rather than simply feeling justified in retaliation. And again, if you ask this question and your partner continues to attack and belittle you, then you are in an unhealthy and abusive environment and you should immediately leave. No loving partner should be intentionally trying to hurt you. I am not justifying or condoning people attacking you. Now, I could literally trot out examples of these common sense being wrong forever. But since I'm working on a limited time frame, I'm going to push on and remind you that if you think you've questioned everything, you haven't. Despite taking two degrees to do nothing but ask these questions, I'm still constantly finding new elements of relationships and interactions that I hadn't thought to even notice as a system of interaction, much less question. It is an exhaustive, lifelong process. I know that sounds bad, but it's also profoundly hopeful. None of us is perfect. The goal isn't perfection, it's improvement. And the first step towards any improvement is realizing the problem. And the problem is that every single belief that you have, which you haven't questioned and built for yourself, is a potential suspect to introduce harmful behaviors and stress into your relationships. This line of thinking led me to one of my favorite sound bites. If you are certain you know something, then I am certain you don't. And that is why I named this podcast Probably Polly. I want to always remember that we aren't dealing in the sort of knowable truths that mathematics provides. Even when there is strong evidence for anything about human behavior, it only applies to the average person and is unlikely to apply to any specific individual. This means that we have to make all of the most important decisions in our lives in a best-guess frame of mind. That is a very hard truth for a lot of us to face. But again, knowing that it's the best-guess and be willing to examine new and conflicting information is the best chance of being as happy and as healthy as you can be. Thank you for joining us today. I hope to see you, hear you, you hear me. I hope you join us next time. Also, don't forget, if you would like to ask any questions, suggest any topics, or respond to anything that you have heard or question anything that you have heard in this particular episode, please feel free to email us at probablypolypodcast at gmail.com. Have a wonderful day.